remember last week, Pastor Gareth explained to us in detail the events that led up to Saul's conversion, the events surrounding his conversion, and of course his baptism following his conversion. And we see it was a truly miraculous event where we witness God's transforming power that changed Saul's life forever. And it is a wonderful illustration of how amazing God's power is and His love for His children and that no one is out of reach of our sovereign, almighty, powerful Lord. So for the benefit of those who weren't here last week, I thought I'd summarize what Pastor Gareth taught us. So if you recall, Saul of Tarsus, aka the Apostle Paul, was still threatening to kill the Lord's disciples as he undertook the journey of approximately about 125 miles from Jerusalem in the south to Damascus in the north. Now Damascus was an ancient city, the capital of Syria, which had a large population of Jews, including the Hellenist believers who fled Jerusalem to avoid the persecution. So Saul was given special permission from the Sanhedrin council, the ruling council in Jerusalem, and he was to incarcerate and imprison any Jewish believers that he came across. However, whilst on his journey nearing Damascus, we see that he is interrupted by a very bright white light, and he falls to the ground. And while lying on the ground, he hears the voice of Jesus saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And this we see in Acts chapter 9 verses 4. Then Jesus tells him to get up, to go into the city, and to await further instructions. But as we know the story, Paul gets up, and as he, as he opens his eyes, he realizes that he is completely blind. He cannot see a thing. He needs to be led into Damascus with his traveling companions. And we see that for three days, he has nothing to eat or to drink. Now, as we recall, the Lord sends Ananias, who is a Jewish believer and who, and who had heard all these terrible things that Saul did to the Jewish believers. But his job was to get Saul onto his feet to orientate him in his new belief so that he could get off to a flying start. So Ananias goes to the house where Saul is, saved, is staying. He enters it and he places his hands on Saul and says to Saul, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. So Luke tells us that something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and that he was able to see again. Saul could see not only physically but he could see spiritually as well and he immediately wanted to identify with Jesus and his disciples. And what is the first thing that Saul does? He gets baptized. Now we are not told if Ananias told Saul about baptism. Perhaps he did. But most likely Saul had encountered baptisms as he witnessed them before, perhaps at the uh, day of Pentecost. But also we know that God spoke directly to Saul during 
this time while he was waiting for Ananias, including the name of the man who would come to restore his sight. So perhaps God instructed him to be baptized. But anyhow, today we continue with our story and we find ourselves in the passage that describes the events after Saul's conversion, where we witness the emergence of Saul's ministry. So that's the title of my message today. Today we learn that following his miraculous conversion, Saul faithfully responds to the command to make disciples of all nations by preaching that Jesus is the Son of God. So we see for Saul, everything was becoming new. Because the Bible tells us, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So for Saul, all that anger, all that antagonism, all that hatred, all that animosity that was stored in his heart was a thing of the past. It was gone. A new day was dawning. A new era was dawning for him. The Apostle Saul goes from being a persecutor to a preacher, from going from a zealot to being zealous for making disciples of all nations. So let's go ahead and read chapter, Acts chapter 9, beginning at verse 19b, following through all the way to verse 20, uh, 31. Acts chapter 9, 19b. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is it not this man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength, and he confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night, and in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So let's go to the Lord and pray for his word. Father, again, we come before you in the name of your son, Jesus. Father, we ask that your spirit helps us 
as we read this text today, Lord. May your Spirit enlighten your word to us, Lord, each and every one personally, Father, so that we can be guided by your word, Lord. We want to be in service, Father, for you. Lord, we pray that we examine our hearts today, Lord, and that we learn from your word, Lord, so that not only we grow in head knowledge, Lord, that we grow in heart knowledge as well. We want to be doers of your word as well. So, Father, we ask for your help today. And we ask this all in your Son's precious name, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. I once read a story of an old superstition in the East that encourages parents to predict their child's future. It suggests that when the child is still a toddler, that the parents should place on a table three objects. A Bible, a bottle of wine, and... A, um, some money. So, what happens is if the child picks up the Bible, then perhaps a spiritual vocation is on the cards. Maybe they will enter the priesthood. But if they pick up a bottle of wine, perhaps hedonism is on the cards. But if they pick up money, then perhaps some form of business is on the cards for them. So a story goes of a new father who is eager to plan his son's future, who decided to administer this test. So he carefully positioned all three objects on a coffee table, and he watched eagerly as the little boy approached the table. So the little guy walked up to the table, he surveyed all the objects on the table, and he slowly reached out his hand and he grabbed the Bible. And then he thought, paused for a moment, picked up the money as well. He put the money into the Bible, and then he put the Bible underneath his arms and picked up the bottle of wine, and he toddled off. Now the little boy's grandfather stood over to the side of the table, and he was silently watching this whole scene unfold. And when he saw the dismay on his son's face, he said, this is bad news. He's going to become a politician. <laughs> I think it's fair to say that we all, we all seek success in life. You just have to look in the bookstores to see that there are plenty of resources and material on how to find your purpose in life, how to find meaning, satisfaction, and fulfillment. But as believers, we know that your calling in life matters. It matters to God. And we know that when God calls you, it is irresistible. Paul states this in Romans chapter 11, verses 29. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. And the Apostle Peter tells us to confirm your calling and election when he writes this. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. So your calling is simply God beckoning you to your service to Him in the place of His choosing, where you find your home in your service to Christ, and you notice the threads that were designed specifically for you, where it gives you that hand-in-the-glove sensation and the security that you are using your gifts and your will to God, to God's end first and not your own. When your will becomes aligned with God's will 
and your calling has found its home. Where God wants all whom He has saved to serve Him in whatever situation He puts them. And this is how we see it for Saul. Saul has found his purpose. He has found his calling. So now we pick up the story again. Following his baptism, we see that he replenishes by taking some food to eat. After all, he had been fasting for three days. He was most likely very weak. And we know that his mind and his body must have been worn down by the conviction of his sin. He needed to regain strength because God had a very important job for him to do. But we see that Paul, or the Saul, had already developed the right priorities by taking care of his spiritual matters first before seeking his physical needs. And one commentator says it like this. He says, in those three days, without sight, he was not thinking about his belly, but about his behavior. He was not thinking about eating food, but about exercising his faith. He was not caught up with consuming a meal, but about connecting with the master. There is a proper time and a place to eat. So we see that Saul was spiritually strengthened. He was also physically strengthened, strengthened by taking the meal. So let's look at my first point, okay? We see Paul proclaim or Saul's proclamation in verses 20 to 22. So verses 20 says, And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and he confounded the jews who lived in damascus by proving that jesus was the christ so the first thing he does after spending some time with the disciples in damascus is to preach he goes from being on his back when blinded by the light to on his knees praying to on his feet preaching he wanted to immediately tell people about Jesus. He understood his mission very well, which was to make disciples of all nations in Matthew 28. And this verses tell us where he went to preach and what he preached. It tells us he immediately went to the synagogues to proclaim Jesus as the Son of God. And the King's James Version uses the word straight away, which comes from the Greek word ethos which means at once. So he didn't waste any time at all in his purpose and his calling. R.C. Sproul says this, he says, Just minutes before his conversion, all that Paul could think of was what he could do to Christ. But immediately after, all he could think of is what he could do for Christ, which reveals the essence of his radical conversion. But we must also remember that Saul was a Pharisee. He was born in Tarsus and was therefore a Jew and a Roman citizen. And he came to Jerusalem as a young man and studied under Gamaliel, which was the famous rabbinic scholar of that time. So Saul was used to speaking in public. He was used to speaking in the synagogues. And the synagogues 
were places of concourse where they used to meet uh, and used to uh, uh, see people and preach against Christ and punish the disciples there. And the first offers of the grace of the gospel were uniformly made to the Jews. We see that Saul did not offer the gospel to the heathens at Damascus. He first offered it to the Jews in the synagogues. And what did he preach? Well, this time we see that his message had changed. He was proclaiming that Jesus is the Son of God. He preached the doctrine of the deity of Jesus Christ. And that Jesus of Nazareth was in fact the Son of God. That he was the Messiah. A completely astonishing statement. Saul of Tarsus proclaiming that Jesus is the Son of God. We can see how much Saul has changed. Saul had met Jesus on the road to Damascus. And now he was certain that Jesus was the Son of God. That he was the Messiah. And notice how convincing he was in his arguments. For verse 22 tells us, He confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. And notice the response of the people sitting there in the synagogue. They were most likely there to hear Saul condemning Christians. But now, notice how the tables had turned on them. They must have been sitting there scratching their heads thinking, Is this guy for real? As somebody kidnapped Saul, is this an imposter? Is this an impersonator? They must have been so confused. I mean, Saul was sent to persecute and kill anyone who uh, said that Jesus was the Son of God. So essentially, before his conversion, Saul was saying that Jesus was not the Son of God. A complete reversal of what he was sent to do. So no wonder they were all left confused. One commentator paints a picture for us and he says it like this. We can all picture what happened. News of his arrival would cause an immediate stir. Here was the Grand Inquisitor of the Sanhedrin, armed with documents demanding full cooperation of the faithful in the task entrusted to him of rooting out heresy. The rule of the synagogues would be deferential. It was not every day an accredited agent of the Sanhedrin crossed the threshold of his synagogue. Saul would be given the chief seat. Every eye would be on him. Some would gaze at him with approval, others with apprehension. In due course, Saul would beckon for the scriptures to be handed to him. He would stand and read the passage, hand back the scroll, and face the congregation. A hush would fall. Now it was coming. A denunciation of the new sect. Reasons for regarding it as heresy. Fierce invective against Jesus of Nazareth and the common fisher folk who headed the apostasy in Jerusalem. News of measures actively underway in the capital to put an end to the cult and demand that those knowing of any Christians in Damascus put their knowledge in Saul's hands on pain of sharing the fate of Christians. But instead, taking the reading of the day as his text, Paul preached Christ to the, to the people, proving that Jesus is the Son of God.
their astonishment must have known no bounds. So what implications do these verses have for us as believers in Christ? Perhaps you're thinking there and thinking to yourself, well, Robert, I'm not like Saul. I wasn't called to be a preacher. Well, you're right. Not all people are being called to be preachers or pastors. But as believers in Christ, we are called to make His name, the name of Christ known to the nations, to those who are lost and who are dying in their sin. This is unmistakable, brothers and sisters. This we cannot hide away from. We are to witness for the one and only true living God. We are to respond to the command that Jesus gave His disciples in Matthew chapter 28. He says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. But the problem is, people tend to read these verses and think it applies only to pastors or to missionaries. That they use these verses to inspire them before they go on the missionary fields. But this couldn't be further from the truth. What we learn from the New Testament is that God's people work together in obedience to obey Jesus' commands. That the disciples reach out to the people around them calling people to obediently follow Jesus. Some of them traveled around a lot and even moved to different areas so that they could tell people about Jesus. They took the command of Jesus seriously and literally. One commentator, John G. Butler, says, If we are not going to preach Christ, we need to shut up and sit down, for we have no message of worth for the souls of men. Many churches, therefore, ought to close their doors and stop masquerading as churches, for they do not preach Christ. Rather, they discredit Him and they deny Him. Really harsh words, but thoughts to ponder on. You know, when I first arrived in the UAE, I knew very few people. But after a month or so, I was invited to New Life Church by a colleague of, name, uh, by a colleague of mine whose name was Rene. And of course, in those days, we were meeting at the Emirates Park Zoo. And I was invited to church out to lunch on that day. And I will never forget this, but that day, sitting opposite me, was a man who introduced himself as Bud. <laughs> and when I asked him how was he doing, he said, Brother, God is blessing my soul. That was Bud. He had this joy in his heart. And his mission, since coming to faith some 25 years ago, was just simply to tell people about Jesus. His face lit up when he spoke about Jesus. His enthusiasm for the gospel was evident. It was undeniable. He invited me to attend his Bible studies. He invited me to attend their Alpha groups. And he was so hospitable. He was so intentional. He knew the Great Commission so well, which was he was called to spread the gospel of Christ to those around him. And so began my journey in New Life Church because of Bud and because of Rene. You know, the United States Navy has 700 ships that comprise of what is called the Mothball Navy. These vessels are anchored in, in various har harbors around the country and they receive plenty of maintenance to prevent rust. But of course, they're just sitting there. They're doing nothing. 
even though they require a lot of money and a lot of effort to maintain them. And if you ask any pastor, he will tell you one of the most frustrating things or ministry is that there are so-called mothball Christians in the church. They sit there harbored, week in and week out. They require maintenance, especially when they have a problem or a need. But they're not doing anything to serve the Lord. And pastors call this the 80-20 rule, where 20% of Christians are doing 80% of the work. This should not be like this, brothers and sisters. If Christ has saved you from your sins, then out of love you should be zealous to serve Him. As Jesus said, for the Son, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. In Mark chapter 10, verses 45. So if we are going to grow and be like Jesus, our focus in life should be to serve Him. So let's look at my second point. We see Saul's preparation. Verses 19b, 23a, and 27 to 29. So although Saul was versed in Old Testament scriptures, he was still a baby when it came to the gospel. He needed to spend time with those who actually spent time with Christ, with those disciples who knew and who communed with Jesus, who lived and breathed and suffered for the gospel on a daily basis. So Saul associated with the disciples in Damascus. He conversed with them. He went to their meetings. He communed with them. He previously threatened to kill them, but now we see how much he's changed, how much he loves them, how much affection he has for them. Like Isaiah writes, Now the wolf dwells with the lamb, and the leopard lies down with the kid. But it's interesting to note here that the biblical scholars believe that when Luke writes, when many days have passed, in verse 23, actually means a period of approximately three years in which Saul ministered in the Nabataean Arabian area. Now this is the area encompassing Damascus south to the Sinai Peninsula. And how do we know this? Well, if we turn to Galatians chapter 1 and we read from verse 15, Paul writes to the, to the, to the he writes this letter and he says, But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I may preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into, where did he go? Arabia, and returned again to Damascus. And then, verse 18, Then after three years I went to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, and remained with him fifteen days. Now, if the then in Galatians chapter 1 verses 18 references Saul's return to Damascus, then clearly it means that he's, he spent those three years in Damascus. But if it references the time since his conversion, then at least some, or probably most of that time, or those three years, were spent in Arabia. Now, we are not told of what he did there, but it is presumed that he was being trained and equipped by the Holy Spirit for the ministry that lay ahead. So the biblical scholars do think that he remained the three years there in Arabia as opposed to Damascus. 
But why do you think that? Well, it is unlikely that the Jews in Damascus would have put up with Saul's betrayal and let him preach the gospel under their noses for three years. They surely would have done something about it. And also, if Saul preached the gospel in Damascus for three years, then surely the disciples in Jerusalem would have heard about it by then and would not have then been afraid of him, as we read in Acts chapter 9, verses 26. But it is clear to see that Saul was growing in strength, not physical strength, but in spiritual strength as well, that the Holy Spirit was getting more of him. As he was decreasing, so Christ in him was increasing. His pride turned into humility. He spent time with the disciples in Damascus, and in verse 27 to 29, we see that he spent time with the disciples, namely Cephas and James, for 15 days in Jerusalem, when Barnabas took him and vouched for him. Saul went in and amongst them, and he boldly preached the name of the Lord. So for us, these verses are clear that we are need to equip ourselves for the ministry of the Lord. We are to spend time with like-minded individuals and allow the Holy Spirit to take hold of our hearts. We need to spend time in God's Word on a daily basis. We need to spend time in prayer, time in meditation. Spend time with brothers and sisters in Christ on a Friday at church and spend time with brothers and sisters in Christ in Bible studies during the week. We need to spend time with each other in prayer. Because Proverbs reminds us in Proverbs 27, 17, Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. And if you are new in the church, and you want to grow in faith and knowledge and obedience of our Lord Jesus Christ, I would encourage you to get involved. Soon we'll be running a new members class, where you can discover more about New Life Church, where you can discover how to become a member and how to get involved. Please, I urge you, I encourage you to do this. And remember, in order to make disciples of Jesus Christ, we need to be disciples of Jesus Christ. The word disciple essentially means a student or an apprentice. In Jesus' day, the disciples would follow him wherever he went. They would learn from his teachings. They would train to do what he did. Essentially, they were followers. Becoming a disciple of Jesus means obey, obeying his call to follow. And if we do that, we imitate him. We imitate Jesus. We become like him. It is not possible to be a follower of Christ and not be like him. It's not possible. So like Saul who spent time with the fellow believers and spent time studying the scriptures under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, we are also encouraged to do the same. John MacArthur comments and he says, The one sure mark of a transformed life is the desire to be with fellow Christians. Now that does not mean, of course, that Christians are not to be in contact with unbelievers. But a professing Christian who prefers the company of the people of the world is probably still one of them. But now we see that the honeymoon period for Saul doesn't last very long. Saul probably had great success in debating with his Jewish brethren 
in the synagogue. I mean, if you think his natural abilities, his great intellect, and his extensive knowledge of the scriptures equipped him to outwit the finest minds of the day. He was still enjoying the easy phase, but now we see that this quickly turns into the difficult phase, or even the impossible phase. We see my third point, where Saul persecution, verses 23b to 26, and verse 30. So as Saul was growing in spiritual strength, so was the opposition against him growing in Damascus. Because we learn from verse 23, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. Now, it is important to know of the events in Damascus at this time, because Damascus was under the government of Artus, who was the king of Arabia, who was now at war with Herod, his son-in-law, because he had put away his daughter in order to marry Herodias. Now, as Herod was supported by the Romans, Saul's enemy, enemies thought that he was in, the, in their league or in, in, uh, uh, in, uh, with Herod. But therefore the gates in the city were constantly watched and were kept under guard so that no spy may enter it or no fugitive may leave it. However, we see that their plot became known to Saul. And he managed to escape in the middle of the night through an opening in the wall uh, with the help of the disciples. So we can see how the disciples have, have acknowledged Saul. How the disciples were clearly convinced of Saul's conversion. They helped him escape. But as we notice, this was not the case in Jerusalem. As Saul attempted to join him, they were afraid of him as they did not believe that he was a true disciple of Christ. And the Greek translation tells us he kept persisting, he kept trying to join them. And why didn't they believe him? Well, it's difficult to say, but perhaps as we know in those days, news didn't filter down so quickly. So perhaps the news may not have reached them by then. But also Saul most likely escaped alone. And he had no one with him to corroborate his claims. But nevertheless, can you imagine how Saul must have felt? How he must have been in no man's land. That the people on the side that he was on want to kill him. And the people on the side that he wants to join want absolutely nothing to do with him. Essentially, he's like a refugee. He has no country. He has no passport. So for Saul... It must have felt like mission impossible. And the words of the Lord to Ananias in Acts chapter 9, 16, For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name, were coming true for Saul. However, we see Barnabas vouch for him. He spent time with Cephas in Jerusalem. And Saul continued to preach the gospel of Christ, where we see him disputing with the Hellenists. And we see that Saul's salvation was genuine. Because he did not only profess Jesus, he boldly proclaimed Jesus to the Jews. His actions were being backed up by his words. So much so that they wanted to kill him. So the Jews in Jerusalem wanted to kill him as well. Saul knew what Stephen had suffered at his own hands. And now his life was also in peril. And as we know, as the book of Acts unfolds, we see how much the Apostle Paul suffers for the gospel of Christ 
We see that during his ministry, he is falsely accused. He is savagely beaten by a mob. He, he has various ailment, ailments that he needs to contend with. He's imprisoned. He also survives a shipwreck. Again, he's arrested and imprisoned. And then we see he finally suffers martyrdom at Rome. So brothers and sisters, we shouldn't be surprised if the same will go for us. We too may suffer trials and tribulations for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus reminded the disciples in John chapter 16 verse 33. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. And in the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. And even though we suffer for the sake of Christ, we have unity with brothers and sisters in Christ. We serve a God and we serve one another. We respond to the command that Jesus gave his disciples, which was to love one another as I have loved you. And now look at verse 30. It says, And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So his brothers helped him escape again. They sent him to Tarsus because he most likely had family that he could stay with. And therefore he was away from the murderous plot against his life in Jerusalem. And also, as we learn later, is where his ministry would begin. And we see my final point now, my fourth point, the church multiplied. So verse 31, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So what was the cause of this rest? So some biblical scholars speculate that because of the conversion of Saul, this contributed to it because he was no longer causing havoc and was now spreading the gospel of Christ. But others are not so convinced because they didn't believe that Saul could have contributed to all that problems and that Christians were even being persecuted after his conversion. But it, it was more related to the events of the day because in the third year of Caligula in AD 39, Petronius, who was made president of Syria, was sent by the emperor to set up a statue in the temple of Jerusalem. So, of course, this was a huge blow to the Jews at the time. And so it occupied them as they had no time to think of anything else. They themselves ran the risk of being exterminated and had no time to worry about Saul at that time. But we see that by God's grace, after the storm comes the calm. Although we are always to expect troublesome times, we know that we, it will not last forever. It was a time of breathing. It was a time allowed for them to prepare themselves for the next encounter. The churches were already planted in Judea, in Galilee, and Samaria. And they were, first, they were the first Christian churches where Christ had himself laid the foundation. But we see that they made very good use of their time. They were edified because Luke writes, They increased in knowledge and in grace. They walked in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And because of this, God blessed them. And they increased in number and they multiplied. So what can we learn from this, brothers and sisters? In conclusion, 
If God has saved you, He wants you to be involved in His ministry in some capacity or another. We need to have a ministry mindset where you are so thankful to the Lord Jesus Christ for saving you that you can no longer live for yourself, but rather for Him who died and rose again on your behalf, which you see in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Now this type of person is a person who is always looking for how God wants to use them in whatever situation they find themselves. So no matter what your personal circumstance is, if you are a, a young person, a young teenager, a young adult, or if you have a young family, or even if you have a family with grandchildren, there is no such thing as retirement when it comes to serving the Lord. The Apostle Paul's early experiences in ministry picture this kind of life. His life is an amazing and wonderful example of how a person who has been transformed by God's amazing power used his life to spread the name of Jesus and expand the church to the glory of God the Father. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just want to thank you and praise you for your word today, Lord. Thank you for this example of the Apostle Paul, Lord, who was transformed, Lord, from the inside out. Father, may we look to ourselves, may we examine our hearts introspectively, Father, so that we can know you personally, Lord, that we can repent of our sin, Father, and that we can follow you, Lord. Father, we ask this all in your Son's precious and holy name. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.